Okay, and we're back, and we're joined now by Amy Krishner. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining us. Oh, yeah, I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So uh, Amy founded 8KM Consulting back in 2011, after spending about a decade or so fundraising for candidates, progressive organizations, party committees, um, and actually during the 2016 election, she was the finance director for Priorities USA Action, which was um, Senator Clinton's PAC, uh, and raised over $175 million for the campaign, which is quite astounding. Um, and in addition to that, has fundraised for a variety of campaigns, causes, uh, candidates, uh, and organizations. Uh, all across the country up and, and up and down the ballot. And so we're really excited to have her expertise and her insight as we dig into probably what is one of the most important pieces of a campaign is to uh, raise some money to make sure you can actually run a successful one. Um, and it often happens to be one of the pieces that most candidates are maybe wary or afraid of. It's one of the things that I would be afraid of <laughs> if I were a candidate. Um, so Amy, considering most candidates may be scared of doing this fundraising piece, what drove you to make a profession out of it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good question and one I get asked a lot. Um, so, you know, I think most people end up in fundraising one way or the other largely by accident, um, which is how I found myself uh, doing fundraising. I was a communications um, uh, sort of major in college and I was working at a PR firm um, when I sort of had this drive to, to get involved in political campaigns in some capacity. Uh, I was really unfamiliar with what that could mean. So I did a series of informational interviews that all of a sudden led me to being offered a fundraising job for um, a governor's race in my home state. And, you know, after telling them I didn't really know what fundraising was, they said, that's okay, it's fine, we'll, we'll teach you and uh, handed me a manual and stuck me on a plane back to back to Kansas, and uh, that's how I got started. Um, so it was three months of a pretty big sprint and uh, learning as I, as I went along. And what I sort of figured out pretty quickly was that you, know, you, uh, you sort of have to have the funds and the resources you need if you're going to uh, really be able to make a run at campaigns, especially ones that are tough. Um, and I figured out I was pretty good at it. So um, I thought I'd just try one more campaign, see if I liked fundraising, and one more became another one, and then another one, and then another one. And it turns out that this many years later, this is what I do for a living. So, uh, and I, you know, along the way, really learned like some nuances to it, and it became less of an accident and more of a, of a choice. But, uh, but that is exactly how I found myself in it. I wish there was a better story, but that's, that's the one we have. You are not the only person uh, or fundraiser that I've run into who has a similar sort of fall into the uh, career story. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I sort of fell into uh, the training space as well um, and have ended up loving it. And and again, right, sort of after doing a couple, you get, you're like, oh, I really like this and I'm good at it and <laughs> just continue to do it exactly. <laughs> and make a career out of it. Um, as you think back on all of the numbers of organizations, causes, campaigns that you worked on. Uh, is there any particular one that sort of sticks out as um, memorable to you? Sure. Um, so I, you know, I think they're they're all very special, as I would say, in their own in their own ways. Um, but there were a couple that, um, you know, that that really stand out. Obviously, my first one, um, where you know, I was really just trying trying my hat, you know, at 
at campaigning at all um, and was really fortunate enough to do it in my home state um, for a Democrat, which didn't happen very often and, um, and you know, it mattered to me. Um, and then, you know, able to kind of pull off a, a surprise win, um, which was a big deal and a bigger deal than I even realized at the time. Um, so I think that one really stands out. Um, you know, I I worked on a few races in between that one and um, Claire McCaskill's race for governor. Um, but that one really stands out because uh, it was the one where I, you know, was on a significant amount of time, amount of time longer um, and had a really unique role um, where I was traveling with her and we were fundraising on the road as she, you know, hit every corner of a very large state. And um, unfortunately, the result that evening was not on election night was not the same as it had been on my first race. Um, And so it was a real heartbreak. And I think that stands out because, you know, I think you have those defining moments where you put everything you have into a lot of these races. And when it doesn't turn out, you have to make a decision on whether you're going to stay in the game or you're going to go try to find something else. And that was a big defining moment for me. And I decided to stay in and really am glad I did because it led me to Emily's List, which uh, took, I think, sort of a gritty, the gritty campaign fundraising side of me and turned me into a much better uh, development side. And for, you know, for folks listening who don't know what Emily's List is, it's an organization um, designed to support women running for office, Democratic women running for office. Um, it had been an organization that had supported me through trainings and um, really helped me become a better fundraiser while I was on these campaigns. And so my, my big dream was to work there. Um, and I was lucky that there was, an, there was a spot open that allowed me to do so. But it, what it really taught me was, you know, sort of the movement from just, you know, trying to trying to raise to a quick budget, a quick budget, a quick budget to more of a long term development plan. So I would say I went from fundraiser to development officer pretty quickly. And and that was a, uh, a big jump. And so I'm glad I stuck it out. And, you know, everything I've sort of done since then has been launched from those couple of moments. So, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, so as you're working with candidates, um, are there any sort of tips or tricks that when you start to fundraise as candidates should be thinking about that uh, advice you can offer? Yeah, um, I mean, I have so so much advice. Um, so, you know, I think I think you'll probably find yourself um, with someone who was the me, you know, 15 years ago, who's probably pretty green and is trying to explain to you something that maybe they don't fully understand themselves. But, um, you know, and that can be a really challenging um, situation. But, you know, this is it is okay to be nervous about this. And it is okay to be uncomfortable about this. And, you know, I think it's I I look back and think of all the times I asked people to just like sit in a chair and do this when it was so clearly something that was just not you know, a second nature to most people, Um, you know, and I think knowing that going in, that accepting that those are two really okay emotions, um, but then also accepting that if you want to do this other big thing, you have to get through this. So, um, so I ask all of my candidates that I work with now to sort of shift their thinking, right? The first thing we try to do is we shift the thinking from you are asking people to, to give you something, 
right? So I, don't, I actually don't, um, I don't refer to, I used to refer to people who give as donors and now I can, now I refer to them as funders or investors, right? Because it is a much more accurate description of what they are. Um, they are investing in this idea that you will be a good representative for whatever it is you're running for. So um, you're not asking them to invest in your, I'd like to buy a new pair of sneakers fund, right? This is, this is not that, you're investing, they're investing in the ideas you are carrying forth as your platform um, and in your ability to, to run a good campaign. And part of doing that is to meet your fundraising requirements. So, so once we sort of shift our thinking that way, I think it helps people make the asks a little bit easier. Um, you know, it, it does it does initially feel like you're asking someone for sort of a handout, and that is in no way what this is, right? Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. Um, I think uh, I had a, a fundraiser who has similarly sort of shifted that mindset around fundraising for me. I mean. Folks want to contribute, and folks want to uh, contribute in a variety of different ways, whether that's volunteering or voting for you. And some people don't have the time to volunteer, or they don't live in your district. And the way that they can support you and your vision and your ideas to bettering the community is by giving money. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. And so we've talked um, earlier uh, around messaging and sort of how do you hone in a message, particularly when you're talking to voters, uh, whether you're talking to your base or your persuadable voters. How is a fundraising pitch sort of different than that? Um, or is it? And what sort of makes a good fundraising pitch? Right. So um, so a couple of things. I think, I think in some ways that can be very similar, right? Especially if you're talking to people. And I think it's, you know, I think it's probably important for your listeners to know, depending on what kind of campaign they're running, they may only be calling people that are directly impacted by whether or not they're elected, but often they might be calling people who aren't in any way impacted, um, directly impacted by whether or not they're elected. So, um, so I think the conversations are a little bit different, right? If you're talking to people who are in your um, in your district or you know in your state, your message is somewhat similar, right? You have to remember you're often you're talking to people who write checks but also can vote for you, and I think that's really important. Um, but when you're talking to people outside of your district, outside of your state, who may or may not sometimes be able to pick your state off a map, which happens sometimes, um, you know, I think it's trying to figure out. You know, there was a reason. There's a reason someone suggested that you call this person. You may know them personally, um, or you may not. And so, what was that reason? And so, I think it's talking directly to, you know, sort of their needs, right? Um, we're in a unique time, right? And I actually think this is a great time to be fundraising, truthfully, um, because uh, to a previous point, there there are a lot of people out there wondering what they can do, right? There is they there is this feeling that they have to do something. And so what we're seeing is a pretty big uptick in the number of people who are becoming um, investors in these campaigns. And you know they're, they're getting more organized and they're getting more thoughtful. And um, oftentimes a lot of these groups have really stated platforms on the things that they care the most about and they're gonna support candidates who speak to those platforms. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of doing some pretty simple research on someone to figure out a little bit about their background, you know, if they have a giving history, does it follow some kind of pattern? Do they give a lot, you know, they give only to women, do they give, 
you know, heavily to women that gives you kind of a glimpse into maybe something, you know, something that they care passionately about or, you know, are they, you know, do they have a lot of environmental giving or, you know, it can give you sort of some, some tips into what are some points you want to stress with them. Um, my also my advice is uh, don't tell people just what you think they want to hear you have to be genuine um, funders are really smart and they can tell when you're not being genuine so i think you know don't tell them something that's not true they'll see right through it and uh you know and so tell them you know what it is you actually do stand for and what you'll you know what you'll do when you're elected and i think um, you know, they'll support you or they won't. That's, that's the, there are two results on any given fundraising pitch, right? And, um, or sometimes there's a maybe, which is kind of annoying, but you know, it's <laughs> fine. But usually it ends one of two ways. And, you know, I would say more often you end up with yes than you end up with no's. And no one ever died from hearing the word no. So, you know, you'll, uh, you'll survive. Right, right, right. I mean, and, and for folks who are just sort of starting out and have no idea where to even find that information, where, I mean, as they're researching donors or potential givers, sure. where would you find that? Sure. Um, well, the good news is the internet exists in a way that it didn't when I was <laughs> first starting Absolutely. out to do this. Um, so, uh, you know, so the ability to, to do some pretty simple Googling um, is, is uh, available. And a lot of times you can find some really interesting things. Um, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these funders are repeat funders, so there's a lot out there on them. Um, there's, uh, you know, there are a couple of websites. There's um, Open Secrets, right? They they have a pretty good um, database that you can search through. You can obviously search through the FEC, which is um, the you know the official um, site. I find it a bit arduous, but you can do it if you want to. Um, and then uh, I you know I like Political Moneyline. Um, it's a paid um, subscription. But if you're doing a lot of this and you're doing a pretty robust um, search, I find it to be probably the most user friendly. Um, but you can get your information from from free sites as well. It's not going to be a huge hindrance unless you're you know, trying to raise 20 to $25 million, then maybe go ahead and splurge on the on the subscription to save yourself some time. Right, that's super helpful. And I mean, and I think even if they're not on the FEC or Open Secrets mm-hmm. or, or one of these sites, right, looking at their Facebook or their LinkedIn to figure out like, what are the things that they've liked or boards that they're on or things that they're involved in, I think is also helpful, I would imagine, Yeah. to understanding sort of yeah. why they give or why they would give. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I think I think having information can be very powerful. Um, I would I would also uh, just from a from a practitioner side of things who works with a lot of candidates, um, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good here. Um, I, I have a lot of because there is so much information available. I have perhaps uh, a few um, candidates who use it as a stall tactic to actually having to make fundraising calls. Um, the internet can provide an endless amount of uh, information if you dig long enough. It's just a matter of whether or not you want to make any calls that day or not. So, um, so I would say, you know, get get a pretty good baseline so you have a sense of like what it is they do for a living or what they're involved in. Um, you know, but I I do think knowing you know what their third grade dog's name was might be a bit weird, and I can't <laughs> imagine how it would come up in conversation. So, um, yeah, so it might be a little too much. Right. So for candidates, when we sort of are in a training space and ask folks, right, raise your hand if you'd rather ask a stranger versus asking your friend, I think we get a sort of a mixed response to that. But for folks who are 
maybe wary or scared or seem awkward um, to be asking their friends and family to invest in their campaign, um, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, so, uh, you know, I think this is really normal, right? Um, I actually, um, I ran for office. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I did. it's very hidden. It's one of those things I try to keep off of uh, Google. Um, so no, I, uh, when I was living in um, Baltimore, I ran for um, Democratic Central Committee, which is kind of a, uh, there's no way to describe it. It's very odd. Um, but, uh, but it's not traditionally a campaign that people would raise money for, but I'm not exactly your traditional candidate so for a race like that. So, um, so you know, someone said you should fundraise, and I thought that wasn't a bad idea. I probably should. Um, but then when it really came down to having to make a list and call my friends and family, I was like, wow, this is really hard. And it gave me a newfound appreciation for exactly, you know, what I'd been asking um, people I'd worked with before to do. So, um, but how I got through it was was really that shift in mindset, right? Um, when I when I stopped sort of asking, like I was asking for, you know, I'd like this for my birthday gift, right? Like it wasn't it wasn't that. It was talking about why I wanted to do this and what I thought I would bring to the position when I was elected. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I think your friends and family always surprise you, right? And I think they, they oftentimes believe in you a little bit more than you even believe in yourself. So, um, so the response I had was really good. Um, you know, and so I think like, you just kind of have to rip the bandaid off on that one sometimes and just start. And then, you know, hopefully you have really nice friends and family that, that won't make it too hard on you. Um, but, you know, but I think if you asked me whether I'd rather call people I know or I'd rather just like be handed a stack of people, I'd probably pick the stack of people I don't know and because I feel like I could do a pretty good fundraising pitch. Um, but that's not a realistic way to start funding a campaign. It's not, it's not the fastest, it's not the best practice and you really should go to the people who know you, who already believe in you and, and start to get their investment. And um, once you build that base, you can expand out. I mean, I, I feel like they're they're often the lowest hanging fruit because because they know you and they want to <laughs> right. see you succeed and they want to support you, right? Although I've definitely heard the candidate or two talk about how getting a check out of their parents or their mom or dad was probably the hardest check <laughs> versus getting it out of some other friends or family members, um, which can be the case. Right, right, exactly. So shifting gears here to sort of what a fundraising team, so say a candidate has the resources to to build a team, they have a campaign manager, they're bringing on uh, a fundraising team. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what they should be looking about or looking for in candidates that they're hiring and sort of the difference between like a smaller race and, and a, like a much larger race? Sure, absolutely. So, um, so I've, you know, I've been involved in races of all sizes. Um, and so I've been the sole finance person on a longer shot congressional and I've been one of a you know 18 member fundraising team on a much larger senate race or governor's race so um so they really do vary I think um you know the things that you you want out of your finance team are you know sort of a passion for what you're doing right this is um oftentimes this is sort of like 
you know, the least exciting part of the campaign. Most people assume it's going to be the most important part because all they see are those very frontward facing galas and the big parties and um, and those come much later and <laughs> are actually really very much fun for the fundraisers because they're usually working. So, um, but, you know, they're going to be grinding out, doing a lot of donor research. Um, they're going to be, you know, uh, following up on pledges and, you know, and then following up again when those pledges don't come in, they're going to be doing a fair amount of accounting sometimes. Um, so, you know, so I think what you're looking for is someone who has enthusiasm for what you're doing, um, who's really bought into, you know, making the most of the experience they're getting, growing and learning. Um, so I actually don't, you know, I don't dissuade folks from from hiring people who maybe on paper don't check every single qualification box. Um, I think there's something to be said for having to hustle a little bit and try to figure some things out as you go. Um, and I'm probably a little biased because I think those were opportunities I was handed. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm fond of saying I have had a few jobs I never should have had, um, but was able to make it work. Um, and so I think, you know, you can really get some great talent um, by taking a risk on someone after you meet them and you just know it kind of feels right, even though it may not be perfect on paper. Um, and then the number one thing that all fundraisers have to be is detail oriented. Um, and I can't stress that enough. It is a, it is a job that is, you know, won or lost in the details. So keeping track of everything and, uh, you know, you, they're going to be interfacing with people that are going to fund your campaign. And so making sure that the thank you notes have names spelled correctly and, um, you know, and are free of typos, you know, all of those things are incredibly important because they re reflect upon you and on your campaign. So, um, so I would say that was, those are the questions I ask um, when I'm talking to people about working on campaigns and I do, you know, I encourage writing samples, right? Um, it's, sort of a very old school thing that not a lot of people do anymore, but because they're going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of email back and forth or thank you notes and things like that. Um, you do want to see, you know, sort of that component and where you start from at least. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit um, about the difference between say like a call manager who would sort of sit with you during call time to make sure that you're actually making calls and a like finance director or a, like a, like a fundraising director on a campaign? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you know, I I'm very biased that I think the call time manager is uh, is the hardest job on a campaign. It's harder than being the finance director um, because you have to come in every day well prepared and um, with a good attitude, and you have to keep that good attitude no matter what happens. Um, so we'll start with that with that op you know that position. Um, you know, this person is the person who's you know, going to sit there and oftentimes listen to the results um, of the conversations you're having so that, you know, they're tracking the, whether a pledge was made, what the necessary follow-up. Um, but I think more importantly, and great call time managers do this, they catch the details of the call. Um, it is highly unlikely you will call someone one time during a campaign. You'll probably call them two, three, four, or five times. Um, and being able to reference something that happened in a previous call is really invaluable. Um, it is almost the big difference between you know success and 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 not um, because you know while this could be your 487th call that you've made since then. 
you know, odds are they really do remember the first call that they had with you. Um, and so if you can cite some, you know, some interaction, it probably meant a lot to them. Um, and it will certainly mean a lot to them um, when you're able to, to sort of call it back in the, you know, in the next follow-up call. So, um, so I think that's a really important job. Um, and it's sort of the linchpin for everything else. So the call time manager then kicks all of this information that happened during um, call time back out to the finance team. And it's usually directly to the finance director. Um, so the finance director is, I think the best way to say it is the COO, right? Um, so they are keeping the master fundraising plan. So they know what we need to get to every quarter, how we need, what we need to get to total, how are we gonna get there, what components do we need to put into place to get there, and what it means if some of those don't hit the goals that they need to. So they're constantly sort of adjusting, um, they're managing the fundraising team, looking to see you know, do we have the right number of people working in areas that we're doing really well in because we want to make sure we're like not stretched too thin there. Um, and if there are areas where maybe we're not doing so well, can we shift resources? Um, you know, and they're typically more of a senior level person on the campaign. Um, I put them, I put them typically right underneath the campaign manager. Um, I tend to think that's probably where they belong. Um, and, you know, so they become uh, sort of the, like for your biggest and most, um, you know, heavily invested funders, they're the ones that they interface, you know, they interface with the finance director um, more often than sort of a junior level staffer would. Um, so, you know, so I think you're gonna want a, a healthy amount of experience from that person. Um, you know, everybody has to manage people for the first time sometime. And so it's possible, depending on the size of your race, you may not be able to get somebody who's managed before. And management's really hard. It's probably the hardest thing for me to learn. Um, when I was, you know, I was a pretty good fundraiser. I was just not a great manager. And, you know, it's still something that I work on. So, um, so I think, you know, being realistic that you're not going to have somebody who's managed a team of 40 who's going to walk into your campaign ready to go um, feels unlikely. But, um, but you know, having those leadership skills are really important in that role. Um, this is often not easy. Um, and, you know, it is a very pressure-filled role. Um, you know, it is, it is the one thing that <clears throat> pretty often people can point to success or failure, right? They're, they're numbers and they don't lie. So, you know, and so there's a lot of pressure that comes with those. As we talk about um, sort of what you should be paying your fundraisers, I want to sort of touch on two things, two pieces here. The difference between sort of hiring your campaign team, right, and your sort of hiring of staffer for you versus hiring a consultant. Can you talk a little bit if there's like a, a range or what um, candidates should be considering or potential uh, fundraisers as they're uh, looking to be hired onto campaigns? should be considering when they are um, talking about salary. And on the flip side, sort of, are there different ways you can pay or hire a, a, a professional fundraiser or a fundraising consultant? Sure, absolutely. So uh, so it's a pretty simple question with not a simple answer. So um, so I think, uh, you know, with, with regard to the fact that this could cause a riot among my fellow consultants, um, I think my advice would be, if and when you have the opportunity to hire someone who will be a full-time staff person, you should do that in lieu of a fundraising consultant. Um, and I say that because I think, 
you know, consultants uh, bring a ton of value and a ton of experience. But if you have the opportunity to hire somebody who every day wakes up and knows that their one job that they have to do that day is to move your own priorities forward, that's really helpful, right? Um, you're not competing with two, three, four, five, six clients. You're the priority every day. So, um, so if you have that opportunity, even if it's somebody who's a little greener, I'd say go for it. Um, finding fundraising talent can be really tough sometimes. So. Um, you know, so that may not always be an option and not all consultants are, you know, are bad. Obviously, I don't think so. So <laughs> if I did, that would be really awkward. But, uh, you know, but I do think uh, I do think that's a that's a balance you have to really think about, you know, uh, so paying fundraising staff, um, you know, this is the this is the piece where I think it's there are two places where, you know, it, it behooves you to spend money right your campaign manager the person who's going to pull this whole thing together who's going to have a big job managing the entire team and the operation and most of the time you even though you may not realize you're you need to be managed um but the finance person they're usually one of the first people on the ground and if they're not they should be um you can't do much without money so they should be there um so uh, you know it's hard because these these races are you know the, the amount of money being raised in these races is so much more robust than it used to be. So I used to have a pretty good sense of ratio and now that is all out the window. Um, but you know what, it's not unreasonable. I'll give some sort of scale here. It's really not unreasonable on a top tier congressional race where you know, you're gonna need to raise you know, $8 million to be paying your uh, finance director you know, about in the neighborhood of like eight to ten thousand dollars a month, it feels like a lot of money. But when you overall, you know, look at the overall budget and the amount of money they're they're responsible for, um, you know, that's pretty in scale. Um, obviously, if you're going to have to raise that amount of money, they're going to be managing a larger team. So you know, so the work is is uh, much more robust. Um, smaller scale races, obviously, with lower budgets, you will get less experience, but um, but obviously they come with a little bit of a lower price tag. Um, and then, you know, large statewide races, just they, they range all over the place. So, uh, you know, so you'll probably go upwards of 10, um, 10 to 15 for a finance director on a big statewide uh, Senate race. Um, and presidentials, I can't even begin to guess. So uh, more money than we should talk about. So uh, <laughs> and then consultants really also range across the board. Um, the biggest question I get asked is, um, do I do a retainer or do I do a percentage? Um, so uh, I know people who do both. Um, and I have done, I've never done a straight percentage. Um, it's just not, I, I have overhead. I have things that I have to do every day. Um, so I've never done that. I've done a lower retainer with a, um, with a percentage built in on top of that, but I typically keep those um, reserved for sort of the more institutional organizations that have a, have a pretty good infrastructure. Um, for all candidates, I only do a flat fee um, retainer. And I do that just because um, I know the amount of time I'm setting aside to do this every day. I know exactly where this fits in with our time budget, with our staff budget, with every piece of it. Um, and over the last few years, I've learned that, that my work 
only gets us three quarters of the way to where we need to. The last quarter of the way we need where we need to get to is entirely dependent on the candidate. And I've had candidates who do all the work and we get there and everything's great. And I've had candidates who don't do the work and we sort of don't get there and uh, due to no no fault of my own. So um, so I do that sort of as a, you know, just sort of as a this is the standard and this is how we do it. Um, and, you know, I think most consultants by and large uh, are really good actors and take on work that they like and take on work that they are able to actually do. So, um, you know, I think most of my clients would probably say that they um, got far more payout than the investment that they made. Um, and that's a good feeling, right? That's exactly how I would like every client to walk away from the relationship or <laughs> continue the relationship, in fact, most more often. Um, you know, that's the goal, right? And so as candidates are, are starting to figure out sort of what is this mysterious number that I need to raise? Where would you point them to figuring out sort of how much money they would actually need to raise to be even competitive in a campaign? Right. Um, so, you know, so I think uh, the biggest, ideally part of your campaign team that you're putting together are, you know, would be your campaign manager, but also your um, consulting team. So the people who are going to do, if you're going to do media of any kind, um, your media consultant, um, your your digital consultant if you have one or some sort of digital infrastructure right the world doesn't just and doesn't just exist without the internet these days um your direct mail consultant um you know all of the tools where you think you're going to need to win um they should all really be able to provide um sort of some baseline estimates for if this is your win number Here's how you need to communicate with them. It, you know, it's all it's all sort of a big guess at the beginning, right? You don't really know what your opponent's going to do. You don't really know what outside force is going to play into this. Um, so campaign budgets can swing pretty widely, um, but they should give you a pretty good baseline budget. And you know, I mean, I think all campaigns, uh, you know, have a high and a low budget, and you know, the the gap between those two is usually pretty wide, which I find to be interesting, but. Um, but it gives you a sense of what you're going to need to raise. Um, you know, I think if if you are just the person who just immediately knows what your you know cost per point on your media market is, that's impressive. But most people don't know what that is, and I don't ever you know it changes. So oh, uh, and cost per point is honestly, I actually don't actually know what it is um, truthfully. But um, it's it's how much you're going to need to pay to run you know a thirty second. Um, uh, television spot, whether it's on cable, whether it's on broadcast. Um, so, uh, and then I certainly do not understand how digital world works. So I'm sure that you pay somebody some money to do something. I just don't know what that is. Um, so, uh, you know, but that's why you have, should have a good campaign team in place who can give you those good estimates. They've done this before. You know, they've rarely not seen something, so they can give you some ideas. Um, but, you know, I, I would say, you know, do a high budget and a low budget so that you know what your very low baseline is, you know, where you have to work from. Yeah, we have to say the budget is sort of like your roadmap, right? Whether it's your low budget or your high budget, if you're sort of scraping by on the like minimum you need to run this campaign, you know where your money's going. Or if you get an influx of money, you also know where your money can go. Right. Yeah. And the same way you need like you need a fundraising plan, right, to get to yeah. both of those budgets. What should go into a fundraising plan as candidates are starting to create them? 
Oh, sure. So, um, so the place I like to start is um, I, you know, I sort of start every plan by um, it's all an Excel spreadsheet. That's the, that's my one piece of advice. Never do a fundraising plan in Word. I don't know why people would ever do that. Um, so you put it in Excel so it can sum it sum itself. Um, but I do the buckets. So how are you going to raise your money? How you know? How much do you think you need to raise from call time? Which is just straight asking people for money. Um, are you going to do events? Well, what kind of events are you going to do? And then you start mapping that out. Are you going to do fundraising direct mail, um, which is different than voter contact mail, right? Um, believe it or not, it's still a very lucrative tool that some campaigns can utilize. Um, and what does your digital fundraising look like? Does it is it robust? Is it not? Um, digital fundraising is a really tough piece, right? I think um, it sort of like was a switch that flipped really quickly, and it. Uh, sort of became this thing and now every candidate just assumes there's a lot of money that rains in from the internet which is like in fact not the case um, so I do see some overestimations there often but um, so you know I start that way and then I start you know peeling back the layers on it so you know under the events um, events category I really drill down into like who's gonna host events for me how much do I think they can realistically raise and you do targeting that way um, you know, and the the one thing I say about fundraising plans is if the plan you wrote at the beginning is the plan you ended with at the end, you did something really wrong. Um, so it, it just doesn't have, it means you didn't really update it very well. So, um, you know, how you assume the money is going to come in is never entirely the case. Um, there will be money you didn't see coming that will show up. There'll be someone you were 100% sure would do this event and it would hit goal and they completely whiff on it and it just doesn't get there. Um, but that's the point of the plan because I think otherwise when those kinds of things happen, you're not able to make those adjustments because you can't look at a document to see how it all is working together. So, um, you know, I think uh, most, uh, especially on the federal level, this is so, it can be so wide ranging on different uh, state and municipal levels, but you know, for federal level races, they all file on the quarter, um, which is really nice. Uh, it creates sort of these unique um, artificial deadlines that are real deadlines, right? You're going to file a thing. Um, they become more hair on fire deadlines. It feels like in the last five years, but um, but it gives you some sense of okay, every three months we get to measure how we thought we were going to do versus how we actually did, and. So, you know, so bucket it out by tool, but then also start to bucket it out by, by tool and by quarter. Um, and then, you know, the frustrating part of fundraising for anyone, including fundraisers, is the completely unpredicted money that just rolls in at the end for no good reason. And you don't know why everybody just waited, but they did. And, um, you know, it's a really hard thing. Managers don't like it. Candidates don't like it. Fundraisers really don't like it um, because it's harder to spend. You have to sort of take a take a flyer and assume that that money is going to come. It always does. I don't know why. It just does. Um, so probably these artificial deadlines. But um, you know, but you build those into your plan so that you aren't entirely you know surprised by it. And then the worst thing in the world, I think, is you know at the end of a campaign you didn't plan for that, you lose by, you know, less than a percentage point of, and you have $100,000 in the bank, you know, what could you have done with that? You know, if you just planned for it, um, it's the worst feeling in the world, so. 
I mean, and, and as you talk about sort of planning for these deadlines, planning for quarters, et cetera, can you talk a little bit about sort of the ebb and flow of when, when at what points in the campaign you're, you should be expecting a good bit of money versus not? Yeah, um, sure. So, you know, so the last, um, the, when I was doing trainings, what we would tell campaigns is they should expect 50% of their money to come in at the last, like, quarter to quarter and a half of the campaign. Um, I think it's gotten a little bit better than that, but you know, it's definitely not too far off of that ratio. Um, that can make budgeting really difficult. Um, but it's, you know, it's a pretty good time. Your campaign should be at full swing, at full staff, at full speed. Um, that last, you know, that last quarter, it's when you have your, all of your field people and it's when you have, you know, Every person who's ever going to say that they worked on your campaign will be working there in the last quarter. So, um, so it'll be your biggest staff. You know, it all sort of makes sense and it does work together. Um, the other thing too that I just tell people is, you know, really think about like how people live their lives, right? Um, I think one of the things that campaign staff and candidates sort of forget because we're immersed in it all day is that this is all we think about and this is all that we do. You know, look, spring break is a real thing for people. They go away with their families. August is a real thing for people. I don't know where every rich person in the country goes, but they go somewhere in August without phones. So I don't, that's, that's all I've deciphered in the last 15 years. So, um, you know, so you should plan for those things rather than just be surprised and annoyed by it. Um, so, you know, I think uh, I think if you acknowledge sort of the realities, um, you know, the other the other piece that I would say is like, you know, be creative and think through how you're doing things. Um, uh, if you are in a place where football is a really big thing, don't call on Sundays during the game, right? Don't do that, it's a bad idea, um, you know? But then likewise, I am a big fan of thinking through, like, did your did your town just get a big snowstorm that's keeping everyone home? What a great opportunity to call them. They can't go anywhere. So, um, so I think being creative and trying to be nimble, um, you know, they're snowed in, they don't have anything to do anyway. They might as well chat with you. So. Um, so I think, you know, trying to be nimble and be thoughtful about how people actually live their lives will serve you well. Yeah. And as uh, these candidates are sort of calling these folks when they're snowed in in their homes, um, <laughs> we often get um, responses back from folks around tucking themselves out of money that the, the funder, the investor would potentially give them. And we've heard a number of funny stories about or tips and tricks about how to stop yourself being like, can you give me $100? Well, how about $75? Well, how about $50? And then all of a sudden you're giving them money, right? <laughs> <laughs> Any tips or tricks for candidates as they uh, to stop themselves from uh, talking themselves out of money? Yeah, I mean, I think and they've probably heard this a few times, right? But, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I feel like candidates uh, always feel like they have to do is just give all of the information that they possibly can. And so these, you know, and this goes back to my, my original um the, you know, advice, which was, you know, think about how people live their lives, right? Like, truthfully, no one really wants to be on the phone with you for 15 minutes, having you tell them every tiny bit of, you know, nuance about the district and about who you are. And, um, you know, and I think a lot of times these become, uh, 
more telemarketing than they should be, right? So um, when you think about a telemarketing call, right, it's a very one-way sort of thing. This is not that. This is a conversation. So, um, you know, so I do think you, you give a little bit of information, a little context about why you might be a stranger calling them. Um, but don't forget to be able to ask questions and do some ebb and flow there. And I think once it becomes more conversational, it becomes more comfortable. Um, the I think I, the times that I do see people talk themselves out of people giving is when they just keep talking. Um, so, you know, so your call time manager should work with you on this and should continually work on this. But when I was a call time manager, um, I had a card that I would just like slide across the table that was like, you have to make the ask now. And that way they knew like it was time. Um, and so, because otherwise they could go on for 10 more minutes. And by that time, that person's so tired of talking that they're just gonna hang up eventually. So, um, and then after you make the ask, take a pause. That is the thing that no one does. And then they keep talking. And uh, there is so much power in awkward silence. So <laughs> it's, you know, you've just made an ask. Let them respond before you respond for them. So um, the one of the best people I'd ever worked with for fundraising uh, would take a drink of water immediately. And she wasn't really thirsty, but it was a really good way to shut up. So, uh, so have, a, have a bottle of water nearby and take a drink. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for joining us um, and for your insights on fundraising. You definitely made it a little bit less scary for me and hopefully for some of the uh, candidates who are potentially uh, jumping into a race. Oh, well, good. Good. I was uh, very glad to do it. So I hope, I hope everyone has great success raising <laughs> lots of money. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Well, if you have any questions about what we did or didn't cover in this episode, please feel free to reach out to us um, by email or social media. Uh, and we'll definitely put some of our uh, blog articles in the uh, episode description for you to check out 